The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this is the, um, the fourth in this series of the Brahma Viharas, and today we're going to talk about equanimity, or upeka. So this is uh, actually one of the more subtle and uh, I think harder to grasp uh, states in this uh, series of four of them. So the first one that we talked about uh, first week was metta, loving kindness, a sense of well-wishing towards all beings. Second one was karuna, compassion. So when this heart of well-wishing turns towards someone who is in suffering, then the sense of compassion arises. And then the third one, which we talked about last week, is this appreciative joy. So when this general sense of kindness turns towards someone who's already happy, then this sense of joy can arise, right? Joy with someone else's happiness. So this fourth one, this equanimity, is actually kind of the foundational one that kind of holds all of them in some ways, right? And it's in many of the different lists that you find in the Buddhist teachings. So it's one of the factors of enlightenment. It's one of the paramis, or the perfections of ten different qualities that the Buddha had to perfect to become a Buddha. Uh, it's in this list of Brahma-viharas. It's also in the, among the states of absorption, in the jhana, uh, uh, sort of different levels of concentration that you can develop. The fourth one is really based in equanimity, right? settling into that. So what is equanimity? It's the sense of stability, right? the sense of being unshaken with the movements of life, but at the same time being connected to what is happening. Right? So uh, having some sense of strength and groundedness in the face of all the changes in our lives. So in life, uh, some things happen that are good and some things happen that are unfavorable, right? So this is true for everyone uh, who is born in this life, right? And it's true for all of us, right? So some days are good days, some days are bad days, right? Some days it seems like good things happen, some days it seems like bad things happen. Sometimes it seems to fluctuate from hour to hour or minute to minute, right? Sometimes you have a whole streak of a period of time in which it feels like a lot of good things are happening, and that's great, right? Uh, the problem is when you start to project that on endlessly into the future, as uh, was done with our stock market at a certain point, right? It'll never change. It's just going to go up, 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 right? Uh, and then what happens in the world of uh, duality, in this samsara, this uh, endless round of changing circumstance and rebirth, then it flips, so if you find this happening in your life, it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong, but this is actually part of the way things are in human existence. Right? And the uh, Buddha talked about the worldly winds that blow through our lives. Right? So gain and loss, sometimes you get things, and that's great, and then sometimes you lose things. Right? Praise and blame, sometimes you get a lot of good things said about you, and sometimes people say things that are not so good about you. Pleasant and unpleasant, right? pleasure and pain. You can see this in the body. Sometimes your body feels good, and uh, it seems like a source of pleasure. And then sometimes it is not so good. Right? You get sick, you start to get old, right? Stub your toe, any number of things can happen right, with the body. And it's always vulnerable to that. Right? And then the fourth set is uh, fame and disrepute. Right, it's called so that um, sometimes you might have a lot of renown, positively, people around you, uh, and then sometimes you don't really. Right? So of course you can try and do what you can to have uh, a more harmonious life and to have good things happen to you, among which is to pay attention to your conduct in the world. Right? So to pay attention to uh, sila, the ethical behavior. So treat people with honesty, treat people with kindness. Right? Don't harm others. Try to be generous. Right? Pay attention to how, you're, how you are with your sexual energy and sexuality. Right? Uh, try not to take substances that make you do things you later regret. Right? 
So that's uh, among the things that we can try to do to try to have uh, more of a harmonious life and to have more uh, of the things in the positive column. That's the pleasure, gain, praise, uh, fame things, right? But it's also true that even if you do that, it doesn't guarantee that you can stick only with that column, right? So the nature of the human body is to get old. Nature of the human body is that you're subject to sickness, right? Nature of the human body is that eventually, sooner or later, it will die, right? And this has been true for everyone who is born, uh, no matter how smart or how uh, fit or how good-looking or how rich they were, right? Also, people will say good things about you sometimes and people will say things that are uh, bad about you sometimes. And so sometimes this is related to... Um, you know, stuff that you do, and so it is good to pay attention to what you do and how you treat people, right? But sometimes it's not necessarily so, right? So even people like uh, the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa or, you know, anyone who you can imagine who is like, oh, that person seems really blameless, you know, they seem like, uh, if anyone's living a good life and helping people and totally dedicated to service, it's that person, right? But people have bad things to say about those people too, right? Uh, Dalai Lama, a lot of people... Uh, sort of politically, say, Chinese government, for example, uh, doesn't like him, right? Uh, send people to try to harm him, right? Uh, similar Mother Teresa, even the Buddha actually had, uh, you know, he's an enlightened being, right? And uh, spent 45 years in selfless service trying to teach uh, us regular schmoes how to pay attention and uh, become liberated. And... Uh, People were trying to kill him. <laughs> so his cousin Devadatta, out of some jealousy and um, you know, uh, of various other people, were trying to harm him during his life. Right? So these things happen, right? So can we have some equanimity? Can we have balance with the changing circumstances of life, with the different things that life deals out to us, right? So every day you might wake up and you have a certain sense like, oh, it's going to be like this today, right? But it seems to be it's like a normal day. I'm just going to get up and brush my teeth, have my breakfast, go to work, you know. It doesn't seem like anything unusual is on the schedule, right? But the truth is you never know, right? Like you never know what's going to happen in a day. Sometimes we have an assumption that we know, like, oh, this day is going to be unusual because I'm going to uh, be married. That's a big day, right? Or, this day is going to but most days mm, nothing so big is happening, right? But really, like, things can change just like that in so many ways, right? For good or for bad for us, right? Every, every moment almost, you know, someone is having a catastrophic accident that's creating bodily harm that will affect the rest of their life, right? And every moment, someone is winning the lottery, <laughs> you know, changing their life uh, forever, right? Now, in both of those cases, we have a sense of, like, well, this is good and this is not good, right? So catastrophic injury, bad, right? And winning the lottery, good, right? And initially, on the surface of it, certainly, like unpleasant uh, sensations from breaking your leg or, you know, getting uh, mauled by a bear or something like that, right? So uh, no one's going to say that's like a gift you're going to, you know, give someone, right? But, you know, people, uh, you know, you, you can think about different things that have happened in your life. People actually learn things from difficulty, right? And uh, sometimes difficulty and turmoil actually opens different doors in our life that we wouldn't have known were there. So I remember hearing that um, the, this guy named Mel Blank, who is a, uh, he's like a, you don't say he's a cartoonist. He did all the voices for all of like Bugs Bunny and all of those characters. And um, so how he learned to do that was actually like he was ill. He was in the hospital for a really long time. And uh, he was stuck in bed. I think he was in traction or something. And he had nothing to entertain himself with. There's a voice, right? So he spent all this time developing all these different voices. And then became like his uh, livelihood and the thing that made him famous, <laughs> you know, and lives on today in uh, all these cartoons. Right? And there's a story, I think I might have told this, the, it's kind of folktale the last time about, you know, the, the farmer who has a horse. i tell you the story, maybe. Okay. So there's a farmer who has a horse. It's a very nice horse. And the people in the town say, oh, that's great, you have this nice horse. What good fortune. 
And he says, maybe. And then the horse runs away. It escapes and runs off. And uh, people in the town say, oh, that's terrible. What misfortune. He says, maybe. And the horse, meanwhile, is out in the forest and finds a bunch of similar horse friends. Comes back with a whole pack of horses, right? So now he has more horses. So then the people in the town say, oh, that's great. What good fortune. He says, maybe. Then uh, his son is helping to try and tame all this big uh, herd of horses and uh, ends up breaking his leg through that. So people say, oh, that's too bad. What misfortune. He says, maybe. And then there's a draft, so the you know to send around to get all the young men of a certain age to go fight in the war. But the son has a broken leg, so he can't go. Right? So anyway, you know, it goes back and forth like this. Like you can keep going for a long time. Right? Uh, I've heard stories of people who've said that you know they they uh, are rushing to get to a plane. There's traffic, something. They miss the plane, which at, se- at first seems like terrible fortune, right? And they they're cursing the traffic and everything. Then that's a plane that actually crashes, right? And people die. So it's just to say uh, that we don't always know, right? Like we have a certain kind of narrow angle view of our life and of circumstance. So one way to help cultivate equanimity within yourself is just to hold this sense of not knowing right, about circumstances as they arise, right? And to sort of expand the view out, right? Like wide angle on your life, on uh, happenings, right? Another aspect of the narrow view is that, you know, we get into this sort of like, why me? It's only happening to me, right? And as I mentioned in some of the other talks, you know, it's actually not true. Like anything that's happened to you has probably happened to someone else too, right? It's probably happened to hundreds of thousands of people and it just kind of shifts who that happens to, you know? Like uh, who whatever circumstance happens to, you know? Like who has something really good happen, who has something really bad happen, right? But we have this sense, this sort of uh, ego-focused sense that it's like all about me and like why me. Uh, So like expanding that focus, right? Broadening that view to take in that like I'm part of this vast mass of not just human beings but actually all beings, animals and, you know, and across space and across time, right? So this is the circumstance that's part of my life right now, right? But that's just this right now and it'll change, it'll change, it'll change, it'll change, right? And I'm part of this whole kind of kaleidoscope of humanity and of living beings that are experiencing this health, sickness, happiness, unhappiness, right? good fortune, bad fortune, right? Uh, people being nice to me, people not being nice to me. Right? So this is all samsara. Like this is the way things are in this world. Uh, and it's good to develop this equanimity to help oneself to uh, bear that more. Now, with the other ones, I had talked also about sort of the near enemy and the far enemy of the states. <clears throat> so the, the, this is like, what's the thing that's really the opposite of that? So you know when that arises? And then what's the thing that's close and can kind of masquerade like that, uh, but is not that? So with equanimity, this state of balance, the thing that's the opposite is actually being like tossed around by circumstance, right? So being very uh, non-equanimous is like um, being really uh, thrown about and... Uh, thrown off balance every time something happens, right? And then also sort of pre that, you can be in a state of sort of worry, anxiety, you know, like just non, non-stability with things. So that one is usually fairly obvious and you get a sense of what that's like. Like we know what it's like to be off balance, right? The one that's the near enemy, so it's close but it's not that, is very interesting. It's indifference. So indifference or uh, apathy. So with that, sometimes it can look like you're actually in a state of equanimity because uh, it can be like, oh yeah, I'm cool with that, that's fine, no problem, right? That's all right. But actually it's because you've stopped caring, right? So equanimity is different because it's actually being intimately connected with what's happening and having the state of balance, right? And it's easy to wobble, right? It's easy to wobble between these, between indifference and equanimity, right? So sometimes you find yourself pulling back from how things are. It's like too much and you can't pay attention anymore or, you know. uh, And it's not necessarily that that's bad, right? It's it's good to know that's what's happening is sort of this contraction of the heart or, you know. uh, But don't fool yourself that that's equanimity, 
that's actually a contraction, a pulling back, right? Or the points at which you have, you have sort of become apathetic or indifferent to what's happening. Just know that that's what's happening. Like this is not true equanimity, right? So sometimes you can feel this with uh, following politics or something like that, like uh, following like what's happening in the healthcare debate or you know any pick your political issue that you care about, right? That's being debated on a national level, right? And you know, sometimes when you're following, it's kind of like watching, uh, like Wimbledon or something, right? <laughs> like it's you know from a distance, you know, on TV, not even in the stands, right? You know, you see these things going back and forth and back and forth, and it feels like I can't. What, what can I do to influence this, right? Uh, and you know what they're talking about is going to actually influence your life in a very uh, immediate, direct way, right? Am I going to be able to have health insurance or not, right? If I, if my family or I get sick, will we be able to be taken care of, right? So you care a lot about it, but because it's getting, it's going back and forth and back and forth. Sometimes you can feel this sense of like, oh, you know, I can't even watch anymore. I don't care. It doesn't matter, right? It's all the same to me, right? So just notice that closing of the heart, and just know that okay, that's not equanimity, right? That's moving towards the apathy or indifference. So one of the reflections in the Buddhist teachings that uh, helps with developing equanimity is the reflections on uh, impermanence, that everything is always changing, right? So the more that we get that, then the more we can also not get sucked into, you know, this is what's happening right now and it's going to be like that forever, right? Another one is actually reflecting on karma or kama. So this is a teaching that uh, things unfold in a lawful manner. So everything arises because of different causes and conditions. What arises right now is the result of past causes and conditions. Many of which are, you know, they're like too innumerable for us to exactly figure out, like, oh, this was because of this, or this was because of this, right? And in fact, it's one of the things that the Buddha said, if you spend too much like time trying to figure it out, Exactly, like your head will explode. It will be, you know, you, you can't figure it out, right? But what you can know is that the actions that we take in the world uh, actually don't just disappear, right? So the actions and the intentions behind your actions actually have results. So results in the moment, of course. So if you're uh, doing an action with generosity, uh, the result in the moment is that your heart is generous, right? You can feel that state of connection and uh, you're existing in that realm, right? If you take an action from a state of rage or violence, then in the moment you've sown the seeds of that. So in the moment that's what you're living in, that rage realm. And then you're also cultivating that quality for the future. Right? So with all these Brahma-viharas, one of the reasons to cultivate them is because what you cultivate then turns up more, right? So the more that we practice kindness, the more that we practice compassion, the more that we practice joy, the more we practice equanimity, then it's more likely that's going to pop up, right? Like that's going to that's turn up for you. The practice around equanimity is uh, similar to uh, Southern Brahma Viharas where you actually sit and you hold someone in your heart, mind, and then you actually repeat some phrase that helps you to call up this quality. So the classical one is, all beings are heirs to their own karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends not upon my wishes for them, but upon their actions. So this is kind of a a cold bucket of water after you're going through the other (laughs) Brahma-viharas, you're wishing kindness and compassion and joy and, you know, it's all very lovely. And then it's like, you know. (laughs) So it's basically stating this is the way things are, right? And, you know, you can veer into with, say, loving kindness or compassion. It's like uh, when it moves into attachment, it's like, you know, I really want you to be happy. I really want you to be happy, right? Do the right thing and you'll be happy, right? But it's not up to you whether that person is going to do that, do something or not, right? So basically, you can wish well for people, and that's you can give people advice, you can guide them, right? Uh, you can try and hold a heart of kindness towards others, but actually, everyone has to make their own decisions, right? Like everyone is on their own journey in life, everyone is on their own path, right? Uh, 
and it's not up to us. So those of you who have um, kids in your life uh, will have uh, intimate experience with this, right? Where uh, you might try to guide them, you might try to mold them, right? You might try to shape them, try to to teach them well, right? But at the end of the day, they're going to do what they're going to do, right? When they're very small, uh, you can be um, fooled into thinking you have more control over them just because you can pick them up and move them, right? (laughs) That only lasts for so long. (laughs) Even when you move them, they often move back, right? Um, But then as they get older and as they're more independent and so on, it's like they're going to do what they're going to do, you know? Uh, you know, even as soon as kids start going to school or spending time away from you, it's like they're going to have experiences and they're going to be making choices and you can guide them and you can try and teach them and you can uh, love them, but they're going to have to make their own choices, right? Like you can't control them. Or if you don't have kids, you can reflect on your relationship with your own parents who may have been, may or may not have been so good at this, <laughs> getting this uh, equanimity around uh, your life, right? spend a lot of time trying to shape and mold you and you know, get you to do the right things which they think would make you happy but may or may not make you happy. So this sense of balance with understanding that everyone is on their own journey. You know, what can we actually do? So we're all connected to each other and yet everyone uh, has to make their own choices and then live with the repercussions of that. Right. Also in your life then, you know, as things arise for you, uh, these are the circumstances that you have, right? So you take birth in a certain family, right? You don't remember choosing that probably, right? And then, you know, there's this body and like shaped like this and, you know, this color hair and, you know, you eat stuff and then you grow and, you know, there's certain things you can do to try and, you know, get in shape or cut your hair and things, but a lot of it is not in your control. So things are the way they are. So this is the sort of short and less technical phrase that is sometimes used in equanimity practice. is just to connect with someone and to say, you know, things are the way they are. Like, things are the way they are for me. Things are the way they are for you. Right. Because things are the way they are, it doesn't mean that you can't then choose to try to do something to improve your life or, uh, you know, cut your hair or, you know, uh, help someone or engage in social change or any of that, right? But the starting point, if the starting point is from understanding things are the way they are, then you go about it from a very different place than from this tumultuous place where you're both fighting against the way things are, not accepting that this is how things are right now, and trying to make things different, right? So there's a much less peaceful heart in trying to engage with someone or with circumstances or even with society from that place. Other supports in developing equanimity are actually developing and cultivating other qualities of mind that support that. So trying to develop a sense of calm, right? So a sense of calm, tranquility, uh, helps build that base of stability of mind, right? That can be there with uh, changing circumstance. Trying to cultivate uh, concentration, right? So concentration is actually just a focus of the energies of mind and body, right? So we do this in meditation when we just try and come back to the object, come back to the object, right? Training the mind to be not distracted but focused, right? So that focus helps in being able to be with changing circumstance in a stable way. And then just mindfulness itself, right? So being able to be present with how things are and training the mind to be able to connect, right? Training the heart to be able to connect with how things are right now. Right. So you find this in the, in the mindfulness practice um, as you go through that uh, there's certain things that you can be present with and it's relatively easy to do that. And then there's certain things that arise in your body-mind process that you don't want to be present with. Right? So certain memories will come up and you kind of shrink back from them right? or not want to see them. Right? Certain sensations will happen in your body and they're okay. Other things will happen in your body and you won't want that to be there, right? It'll be like, okay, I can bear this, but this one I can't can't bear, right? Or certain states of mind, certain emotions arise for us and some of them we're like, okay, this is sort of part of the territory I know about. 
this part of, uh, this fits in with my conception of myself, right? So that's okay. And then certain ones arise and we don't like it. And it doesn't fit in with our sense of who we are, right? Like, I don't want to be a jealous person. So when jealousy arises, like, I want to stuff that, you know, I want to look at that, push that away, right? So practicing mindfulness also helps us to be able to meet whatever the circumstance is, right? Uh, just the way it is, just the way it is. So we don't have to be as off balance by whatever it is that arises, right? internally or externally. And then like with all of these Brahma Viharas also, uh, we influence each other, right? So actually spending time with people who are more equanimous can help you to be more equanimous, right? It's like we infect each other with different qualities, you know, for better or for worse, right? So if you hang around people who tend to be kind and generous, like that helps your heart to lean in that direction, right? Uh, if you hang around people who uh, have a tendency to gossip a lot, then it kind of can pull you into that uh, realm, right? Or people who are bitter about things, right? It's easier to kind of sink into that, right? So it can be helpful to notice like, oh, do I have people in my life who are actually equanimous, right? And uh, actually spending time with them, right? Cultivating that quality, um, allowing that to uh, flourish, right? Also it can help to notice the times when you're off balance and when you're uh, balanced, right? So what, sometimes noticing the times when you're non-equanimous can help you to know the state of equanimity better. Right? And all of us have times that we're off balance, and also we all have times when we're more uh, balanced. Right? So get to know that state of equanimity. Like, what is it like when actually things happen and uh, I feel more okay with them? Right? It can be particularly satisfying to notice that when um, things happen that um, used to throw you off, and then you find like, oh, now I'm actually okay with this, right? So we all have those areas. It's good to notice like, well, what are the areas in which like I have a really hard time and what are the areas in which like it's okay for me? So I, for example, I'm not, um, I don't like driving very much. Right? Uh, and uh, I really dislike driving in uh, traffic and um, brush hour traffic and stuff like that. And mostly I've managed to avoid that in my uh, life. Uh, by either living close to where I work or um, taking public transportation or uh, I was gone to like extreme lengths to avoid the like car commute during rush hour uh, <laughs> times, right? Such that I have actually my, my car, I've only had one car in my life which is a, a 15 year old um, Toyota Corolla which only has uh, 90,000 miles on it because I've <laughs> avoided car commuting so much and so uh, diligently in my life, right, so far, right? So I've taken like buses and trains and everything, right? Uh, so unfortunately, like when you come to teach in the Dharma Center's office, it's in the evening, right? I live in San Francisco, so then uh, subjected to the <laughs> evening commute, uh, the evening commute from uh, San Francisco down here, right? And um, uh, but it's like, okay, so here's this area in which like uh, I don't like it, right? And it can be hard for me. Like this can be an area in which I can notice myself, you know getting like leaning towards aggro or something, you know, it's like, okay, so notice that lean, you know, because actually it's not that bad what's happening, right? It's really the mind that creates a lot of the suffering, right, in these circumstances. Uh, so pay attention, pay attention in this set of uh, circumstances, right? And then notice, like, when is the mind starting to get off balance? Like, can you bring it back, right? Like that, right? So that way you can kind of look at like, oh, okay, so, uh, in the areas in which I'm off balance, like that's actually a really good place for me to uh, learn, right? That's a good place for me to pay attention and to notice, like, what does it feel like to be balanced? What does it feel like to be off balance, right? Uh, notice that, right? That's kind of the edge. That's kind of your like equanimity teaching area, right? Uh, you know, it's kind of like the weight room, you know, that's like the, uh, you can do your reps there, you know, <laughs> with that, right? So cultivating the qualities that support that, uh, expanding your scope, changing the scope of your vision, reflecting on impermanence, hanging around with people who also are equanimous, uh, and uh, holding the space of don't know. Right? So these are all some different ways that you can practice uh, cultivating uh, equanimity. And then the seated practice I was describing when you can use these phrases, like with all of these Brahma Viharas, you actually start where it's easiest. So with uh, like, Loving kindness, it was considered to start with someone who it's just easy for your heart to like 
come open to, right? It's really easy for you to sense, uh, feel kindness for, right? With compassion, likewise, someone who it's really easy for you to connect with them, their suffering, right? So oftentimes that's not someone who you know so intimately that you'll fall into grief, right? But also someone who you already feel connected with. Right? With joy, it's with someone who is already happy, right? And that it's easy for you to connect with that happiness. With equanimity, sometimes it can be actually easiest to start with someone who you don't know that well, right? So the neutral person, so to speak. So sometimes it's actually easiest to try to hold that sense of, you know, things are the way they are for you, right? With someone for whom you don't actually have a personal connection, right? In the other lineups, like the metta compassion, you kind of work that person in towards the middle, right? The neutral person, because you don't, don't have a connection to them. So it often is harder to sense, have this heart well-wishing and so on. But with equanimity, that could be a good place uh, to start, to pick someone who you don't know so well, and just sort of hold their life, right? As much as you know about it, or as little as you know about it. You can just reflect, like, yeah, this person born into a certain family, has a certain level of health, uh, has a certain uh, level of skill in their life, has this kind of job at the moment, you know, has this much money. This is like, this is like how things are for them right now, right? Doesn't mean that it's not gonna change. In fact, it will change, but these are the circumstances of their life, right? And then these are the circumstances of someone else's life, right? So once you get more comfortable with that, and with that it's always good to notice like, okay, am I feeling the indifference towards them? Or am I actually feeling like I can connect with them and hold, right? That uh, this is the way things are for them. So then you can shift into people who you know uh, a little bit more, right? Uh, so people who might be uh, friends of yours, something like that, right? The hardest ones to do are often oneself and the people who are actually the closest to you, right? So people that are closest to you often are the ones who you really care, so you want things to go well for them, or you want them to make the right decisions, right? Or like you want to change things, right? Uh, but you actually can't. So in this lineup, those are actually kind of in the difficult person category, not because they're you know, your enemy, but because it's harder for you to cultivate this uh, quality. So I'll stop with the, the reflections on equanimity there. Thank you for your listening. Let's see if you have any uh, questions, comments. Or since this is the last one of the series, also you can ask about the other Brahma Biharas if uh, you've been trying the practices or you know, if you had questions that you thought of later, anything like that. You were talking about impermanence, yeah. and I think that gets at um, <clears throat> something that's kind of a difficult concept about non-duality. Mm. Can you talk about that? Say something more about that. Non-duality? Yeah, like what's... Well, I guess my understanding of it is is that <clears throat> non-duality is to see that it's neither this nor that. It's a leaf, looks like a leaf, but a leaf... If you look at it under a microscope, is something else. <clears throat> so seeing a leaf, you should see that it's the leaf and it's all its dimensions. So mm-hmm. that to be able to hold all of those realities or none, <clears throat> all, all of those uh, aspects of something is to be able to be in non-duality. Is that correct? Or <laughs> getting at it? And say something about the impermanence part. You were mentioning impermanence. Well, impermanence, I think, is that... Nothing is is one thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that sort of leads to that. <laughs> yeah, it's all connected. I mean, this is like, so talking about the three characteristics, so to speak, so th- that uh, everything is impermanent, right? So nothing, and because everything is impermanent, everything is actually in a process, so nothing is one thing, right? So there's no solid thingness to anything. And then because of that, our usual relationship to things, people, experiences, as if they are solid objects that we can grasp, cling to, seek happiness out of, uh, is doomed, right? So there's dukkha there, right? Um, the way you're talking about the um, duality is, or non-duality is like the kind of being able to see in the moment, like the leaf, and then at the same time, its connection to uh, everything, right? So different levels of that, they're sort of like 
going micro and going macro with it. So the micro level is like seeing the leaf and then you see all the cells and you know, it's like all these little things, right? And it's true of everything, right? And at the end you get to space, right? It's like these molecules, these, these atoms, and then there's a proton, and then it's like space, there's like nothing, right? And then you go the other way in a more sort of mundane way and it's like the leaf, it comes about because of water, because of sun, because of the tree, because of soil, because of all this stuff. So in that way it's actually, you go one direction and it's space, it's nothing, you go the other direction and it's, it's part of everything, right? So nothing is separate in that way, right? Everything is totally uh, connected. So, you know, we're all here as a result of uh, every bit of food that we've eaten, uh, you know, all of our life that has given us life, right? And so then all of that food has come to be because of all of the people who have cultivated that food, all the farmers, all the farm workers, all the people who have carried that in the trucks, all the people who have cooked that food for us, people who have made the refrigerators, they kept that food not spoiling. You know, you can go, right? It's like this huge uh, thing, right? So, you know, uh, all of us would have very long, you know, gratitude speeches if, you know, <laughs> if we really include uh, all of that in. So, so I think it's true. They're both uh, intimately connected like that. And actually in seeing that, you know, just connected around to the Brahma Viharas, like that, I think that helps with equanimity too, right? Seeing that balance, seeing that we're all connected, right? And with the sense of kindness too. And actually a lot of the, the times that we're not able to access the, these uh, Brahma Viharas is when we're in this state of believing we're totally separate, right? Like there's me and there's other people who I need to compete with or battle for my uh, existence and for my happiness. And... I have nothing to do with them and, you know, like all that stuff. There's me and there's the reward, right? So it's kind of like in duality, there's, any moment that there's duality, there's me and there's like the other thing. And the other thing can be like something I really like or something I don't like. And so then immediately I have this relationship of like seek or kill with that other thing, right? And then that gets, that relationship gets reborn like over and over again in our consciousness, like as we go through life. So the Brahma Viharas is a way to like connect in to this interconnectedness like to the heart level, right, of that. Like through actually the experience of that, you know, in the heart. And the more that we're able to rest in that also, like the more uh, at peace we can be. Others? I have a question about the first, the first week. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on when you are picturing the nearest the easiest person yeah. if that person has died. Mm. What's your experience been if you tried to, did you try to do that? Yeah, it's um, hard for me not, I mean, that person is so, sort of the only person I can think of. Um, and sometimes it, it, it seems to work really well. Mm. And other times it feels like important grief work. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, in general, like, it's, it's often not so recommended to use... Like, well, it's good to reflect on someone and then to feel what you need to feel with them. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of what you're saying, that like, it's easy to, be, to feel like grief, uh, particularly if it's someone close to you and particularly if it's someone who has died more recently, you know, um, that that sense of um, loss is there. And so then, actually, that will be the predominant thing that you're connecting with, right? Which is it's not definitely not a bad thing to connect with loss, but just, you know is different than the cultivation of the well-wishing in that way. Mm-hmm. Also, depending on your sort of beliefs about, uh, you know, what happens to someone after they die, you know, that sense of well-wishing can feel more or less, um, uh, like, real or meaningful, mm-hmm. you know, when someone has already died, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the sense of wishing them well or healthy or safe or, you know, so, uh, I mean, if you believe in that person that there's taken another incarnation and then you're kind of using this image but generally wishing for the you know general continuity then it seems possible but depending on like what kind of sense you have of that or not it can seem more or less like how can I wish that you're healthy because you're dead you know it's like not you know uh, like that um, also you know these practices are used um, for uh, concentration practice too like for actually uh, developing the kind of concentration that you can lead to uh, the jhanas or these different um, levels of depth of concentration. So in those uh, practices, when you're actually using the Brahma Viharas for those, that purpose, or in general concentration, um, the classical sort of suggestion, and this is kind of like 
the Buddha didn't necessarily say this, but this from various commentators, was not to use someone who's died. Um, and the explanation I've heard for that is, um, besides the whole grief thing that we just talked about, that um, actually like the energetic connection is stronger with someone who's still alive in some ways. Um, so, you know, you can kind of check that out and see if that feels true or not. But, you know, that goes to the whole realm of like, well, does it actually do anything? Like, do you actually connect with that person, right? And, um, you know, there's many stories that suggest that it does have an effect and can have an effect on people. So then, you know, something about like uh, wishing well for someone who's still uh, on this you know, planet in that way you're imagining them seems helpful. Um, I have a question about the relationship between equanimity and social justice work. Mm-hmm. I think I sometimes have a hard time reconciling those two because, I don't know, I think about kind of anger or dissatisfaction with the status quo as an impetus for social justice work. So I guess I'm wondering if you could speak a bit more about a comment you made about, I don't know, how it's helpful to come from a place of equanimity. Yeah, yeah. I think this is um, it's a good thing for uh, us to reflect on, particularly if you're oriented towards like changing things in society and um, you know seeing things that are actually uh, injustice in the world or oppression, right? Of which there's plenty of it, right? Um, and it's good to look at like, well, what's the motivation from that, right? Like that comes, you know, and it's always like a mixed bag, oftentimes, right? So it, it's not necessarily I think that like you have to wait until you're perfectly, you know purified in order you can take any action, right? But it's good to notice, like, when is what I'm trying to do in the world coming from this place of, like, hatred, rage kind of thing, right? And how does that feel in myself when I'm doing that? And how, what effect does that seem to have on others, right, too? So, so both, like, what is that cultivating myself and how effective is that or not, right? And... It's kind of like, like the equanimity part is just the like, things are the way they are. You know, this is how things are right now. Like, we don't have universal health care in the United States, right? There is racism, you know. Uh, it's like, uh, there's, uh, gay marriage is not legal in California, you know. So whatever it is, it's like, yeah, this is the state of how things are right now, right? And then seeing that, it's like, oh, okay. And then I can see that there's something that needs to be done. And so then ideally that can come from a clear seeing and from compassion or from a clear seeing like I think it doesn't have to be that like action has to come from a place of weakness like in fact there can be this strength of action that's kind of like um, even in your own practice I think this is helpful to see this sort of sword of Manjushri kind of thing it's like okay enough you know so but that that action comes from wisdom and clear seeing right so it doesn't actually have to come from hatred but there can be that clarity and like this needs to change you know just that clarity, right? So also in, when you're doing your practice, like you can notice this, like something arises, like this fantasy that you've had for the 25th time and you're not seeing anything different from it and, you know, rolling over. And So sometimes if you can do this with enough uh, clarity and actually non-aversion, you can just go enough, right? And sometimes it works, right? Sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> But sometimes it actually works. And I think, it, you know, it says sometimes it's like, um, you know, if a dog has taken your shoe, and sometimes you say to the dog, like, drop it, you know. So you have to say that with a certain amount of authority, right? The dog will drop it. But you also don't have to say it with hatred towards the dog. The dog is just being a dog, has picked up the shoe, you know. But you have to be, like, you know, clear, right? Yeah. So I think it's like that in the world, too. Like, we can take actions with decisiveness, with strength, with clarity, right? But uh, it doesn't have to come from hatred or, or being off balance, right? In fact, the best kind of, I think, understandings and movements come from a place of actually balance, like actually seeing a positive vision of what you want to move towards, you know, and having that be the guide, right? So positively motivated by that, and also compassionately motivated by the suffering that you see in the world, right? Like, oh, this is not right. Like, look, people are suffering, this is not right. right? So, and I think also anger has many different flavors. So, you know, what we call anger, because there's kind of an anger that's sort of hatred-tinged, and that feels like it's burning and it's like eating at you, right? And then there's also something that we call anger that can be like clear seeing, energetic, like enough, stop it, you know, right? And that energy, like I find in my life, it's important, <laughs> you know, that's, it's good and it's helpful. And uh, 
you know, it can be like someone who's harassing you at the bus stop. It's like, enough, stop it, you know. Like, you don't have to be all, you know, marshmallowy with people all the time, you know. You can be like, you know, this is that, like, enough, right. But you don't have to hate that person, right. Like, you don't have to do it out of, like, uh, you don't need to kill them, you know. Uh, it's just like, enough, right. So for me, in the expression of this, and also just having been part of various social change movements and trying to change things, is like, the people who I've seen in those movements who act from hatred, and that's the primary thing, like that's what they cultivate. And I remember I've, I've, I did a lot of work in um, HIV AIDS and um, LGBT movements for a long time. And then I remember meeting this guy who was like sort of a senior guy in this uh, movements, and um, he was so bitter, you know? I saw this guy and he was so bitter and just like, uh, kind of knotted up inside. And I remember thinking, like, I do not want to become that, you know? Like, I care about these issues and I care about these movements, but, like, that is not who I want to be in 30 years, is, like, that guy, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I don't think that guy even wanted to be that guy. But, you know, he didn't, like, know how to do it differently, you know? So, uh, I mean, one of the advantages of having encountered these teachings is, like, oh, okay, we're going to have to pay attention to, like, how we can do things. And it doesn't mean that you have to be less effective, too. Like, I don't think, right? In fact, like in the, the Buddhist teachings, and then you hear this also from Gandhi and from uh, MLK, is like, I think I said this in the first one, like, hatred will not cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love, right? This is a universal law, right? So if we meet hatred with hatred, like, it just adds to twice the hatred, you know? It's like, like that, right? But it's hard, like, it's hard to navigate that, and it's good to, like, just be real with yourself as you're kind of moving through life, and also knowing, like, it's not perfect, so even in even in one particular engagement, like you do your best to stay, be able to stay balanced, see things the way they are, and be clear and do what you can. But, you know, you might wobble into like rage and, you know, this and that, right? So then it's kind of like that, like the, what I was saying, the driving, you know, so like notice, okay, here's the wobbling, right? Anything else you want to say about that? I guess, yeah, some of my confusion is when I think about equanimity as acceptance then um, it's, a lot, it's a lot clearer when you talk about maybe acceptance in order to have clear seeing. But yeah. I think maybe just culturally, I often think of acceptance as like complacency, like, oh, we should just accept the things right. the way they are. So I guess I worry about that complacency energy being really passive. Um, or something. Passive, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think equanimity is actually really seeing how things are, including the icky things that you're trying to gloss over, right? Uh, including that, like, maybe someone who you voted for you thought was going to be a great hero is actually disappointing you, you know? <laughs> you know, like whatever. You know, it's like seeing like, oh, what's the truth of the way things are, right? And uh, can I see that and just see like, okay, this is, this is how it is. This is what is happening now. Okay, so then what ha- needs to happen next? Like that, right? Um, yeah, I think it doesn't have to be uh, passive at all. And in fact, it's like the basis of real action is being able to clear, clearly see. All right, so we're coming to the end of our time here. So thank all of you for uh, being here and coming to this uh, series with me. Uh, My friend Andrea, who's your regular teacher, asked me to come and uh, fill in for her uh, while she's off. And uh, it's it's really good to see a nice uh, sangha that's um, vibrant and has so many activities going on, as I can hear from all the announcements and as... um, supported this center well also, so I'm happy to see the Dharma flowering in the United States and in the Bay Area uh, in this way too. So similarly, I appreciate uh, the donations that you make as an uh, itinerant Dharma teacher now. Uh, yeah, I do uh, appreciate the support which helps me to um, live. And in, you know, I, I love the Dharma, as you probably can tell, and uh, uh, I appreciate so much what has come to my life from the practice I've done and from the teachings I've received. So then offer it in that spirit also of uh, service and uh, freely so anyone else can learn them. And then what's asked in this system is that then you also engage sincerely with the practice of uh, dana too, so that everyone engages uh, with that. And in some ways it's like a strange add-on to, you know, a strange slap on the sort of capitalist market thing where you're not being told how much you should give or what to pay or what this is worth, right? I think um, 
one of the positive sides of this system is that it actually puts the responsibility on each of us as we participate in these things to like sincerely see like, well, what can I offer? Like, what can I, uh, can I and what do I want to, right? So I think each time uh, it's good to sincerely engage with that when you come to Dharma activities. So I do teach in the city and uh, mostly I kind of orbit around East Bay and uh, San Francisco. Um, although also I teach retreats and day-longs and things like that, um, and also longer retreats. Um, I put up a little piece of paper over there, so if any of you want to be on an email list, um, which I'll send out maybe just quarterly or something like that, some update about what I'm up to, then I'm happy to do that. I think I'm, I'm, it's going to be like a Yahoo group or something, so then you can take yourself off if you get too many emails from me and I get sick of it. Right? Um, I'm teaching a day long um, at the East Bay Meditation Center, which is a Vipassana 101 kind of thing on um, this coming Sunday. And then the weekend after that, on Saturday, I'm teaching a day long uh, in San Francisco Insight, which is in the city. So all of you are welcome to come uh, to any of those. And then if you really like the Brahma Viharas, I'm also teaching a um, week-long retreat um, with several other teachers at Spirit Rock in July, uh, which is focused on uh, metta practice. So basically spend the whole week doing metta, cultivating that. It's a really beautiful way to spend a week. and then we also will go through the other Brahma Viharas during uh, the retreat in smaller uh, doses too. So if you enjoyed the practice that we did here and you enjoyed hearing about them, you want to consider um, taking time out to do that too. So we'll just sit for a moment and share the blessings of our practice. So appreciating the Dhamma, the teachings of freedom. Appreciating the opportunity to come together tonight and this place. And appreciating yourself for having made the effort to come and meditate and reflect on the teachings of the heart. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be strong and healthy. May all beings be free from suffering. We share the blessings from our practice with all beings everywhere. Thank you.